Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First up, Euroclosure is coming up in Bratislava, Slovakia on October 25th and 26th. Euroclosure offers a great mix of experienced closurists and new adopters, and everyone can find something to suit their needs. Visit euroclosure.org to find out more, register, or sign up for their mailing list. The 2016 edition of Scala.io is coming up. This year's edition will take place in Lyon, France on the 27th and 28th of October. Scala.io is a non-profit, community-driven conference with a strong sharing spirit. With five different tracks, any functional geek will find something interesting, from beginner to advanced user. General functional programming subjects and other languages will be present as well. The regular tickets are available for 100 euros. Visit Scala.io for more information and to register. EncodeMesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November, with tutorials on the 2nd of November. Visit CodeMesh.io to register and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKERY10. Most of the speakers have been announced, and this year's lineup looks really solid, so do check it out. Scala Wave is coming up on the 25th and 26th of November in Donks, Poland. With keynote speaker Roland Kuhn, one day of workshops, and three presentation packages, Scala Wave is created to build a network of Scala enthusiasts and experts in the area of the Baltic Sea region and beyond. Visit www.scalawave.io to find out more and to sign up for the newsletter for updates. Destination Code, a new on-conference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The on-conf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Soma Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And the 2016 ClojureCons will be taking place in Austin, Texas on December 1st through the 3rd. ClojureCons is the original conference for Clojure and its community. Founded in 2010, the conference is the premier place for developers from all around the world to gather and learn about what is happening in the language, the community, and with the organizations using Clojure. Visit 2016.closure-cons.org for more information and to register. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, please email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you're leaving a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I am Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Hardy Jones. Hardy, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? My name's Hardy. I'm an engineer at No Red Inc. I am a language enthusiast, I guess is what you would call me. I love all kinds of languages, whether natural or formal languages. The current ones that I'm really interested in are Haskell and PureScript and Idris. And you came on to the radar via Brian Lonsdorf and... He mentioned you in his episode, I believe, and as well, when he started tweeting about Magic Read-Along, which you are also involved with, which is the two of you kind of going back and forth, various topics, but a lot of functional programming-related stuff as well, and just hearing your enthusiasm, as you said, for being a language enthusiast about just some of the other stuff you're doing around those languages and other languages and folding these ideas back in. I wanted to get you on and start talking about what you found about all these different languages. So I guess let's just start with how did you get into software and then how did you start to discover some of these languages with functional programming that you're now excited about? Yeah, sure. 
So how did I get into software? I was a super technician for like five or six years, and I didn't want to continue doing manual labor for the rest of my life. <laughs> so I decided to go back to school and learn computer science. So just one day, I just did it, just moved over and then went back to school. So you started out as a technician, and you decided to go to software development and computer science. What was that spark that made you pick computer science? There wasn't really anything in particular. It was just, I was just looking for something that wasn't manual labor. And I talked to a couple people and some suggested teaching, which didn't seem that interesting to me. Other people suggested a couple different fields, but I guess sort of arbitrarily I chose software and that's pretty much the choice. <laughs> so it kind of came down to there's jobs here and it's not manual. So let's check this out and see if I like it. Yeah, which which sounds a little sounds a little weird, you know. Um, but I think it was a good decision. I've enjoyed the vast majority of my time that I've learned software stuff. And if you take a computer science degree, depending on where you take it from, sometimes it's here's Java or here's C plus plus, and we're going to very much teach you what industry theoretically needs with some mathematical background to some extent to understand things like algorithms and maybe databases and some of the preliminary background of that versus there's some other programs that are the, here's a bunch of languages, here's a bunch of different concepts, here's more abstract. What was the computer science route that you went through? And this is kind of setting that stage for how you got into being a language enthusiast and playing with all these other languages that are still considered widely fringe for the most part. <laughs> yeah, so I guess my education was pretty conventional. You know, you learn the C, the C++, Java. Not really a lot of esoteric, not, not really esoteric. In university, I learned, I don't want to say I learned in university, but let me try to give it a more chronological take. I first started learning originally Python, and I learned it through the book, Zed Shaw's book, Learn Python the Hard Way. And this was a really good book because it sort of pushed you to just do something rather than sort of getting stuck on how do I do this thing? I got to learn this one part and then I got to learn this other part and then I got to learn this other part. It was more like, here's a thing and just do it. So when I actually started doing a computer science degree, it was more traditional where you start with like C and C++ and Java. And there wasn't really a lot of like, even I guess what most of us would consider normal languages like Python or Ruby. It was still sort of years behind what the current state of the art is. And so during this time, I was learning other languages here and there. I stopped off at Haskell for a little bit, but I didn't really see the benefit of Haskell at the time. It just seemed like a language that was very similar in syntax to Python, but had more restrictions and was harder to use in your day-to-day -day practice. Because you have to like appease the compiler all the time. You didn't have freedom to just say, oh, I want this list with int in it, and I also want to have a string in it. You know, you had to like do this other random thing when what you want is just so simple, right? So I gave up on Haskell, and I learned other languages as well. The second real big language that I learned was RPL, which is a programming language for HP calculators. So when I was in like math classes, I would just sit there and doodle with different little programs to like solve integrals or whatever, you know, and just like code them into the calculator and like have a whole bunch of fun. And it sort of continued down that road where I'd look, pick up like a couple little bits here and there of a language like Prolog or JavaScript or, or whatever, and then 
just sort of like not really care about it too much because I had Python that was my go-to. At some point, I got an actual job working in industry, and it seemed like it was a good idea because we had the back end was in Python and the front end was all in CoffeeScript. And I think later we, we used LiveScript. And I was really excited because these were languages that I liked and that I knew about and that I could use. And it seemed really good to start, but something that I realized very quickly was that it was very hard to sort of work with other people in these dynamic languages that had no sense of a structure, you know. So I spent a little bit of time trying to figure out how to work effectively on a team with multiple people. And there were two things that I guess came up quite often, which was you either need to write a lot of tests or you need to write a lot of types. And it seemed like at the time it was very dichotomic. Is that a word? I don't know. It seemed very like there was this either or situation where you either were writing tests or you either were writing types. And I think on the whole, we sort of realized that that's not true. Maybe some people don't believe that, but you kind of need both, right? Because sometimes writing types are prohibitively expensive and sometimes writing tests are prohibitively expensive. So I tended to sway towards the type side anyway. And I started learning more about types. And then I took a second look at Haskell and I tried to learn it more in depth. And I said, oh gosh, this is so hard because da 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 da. And I was reading Learn You a Haskell, which I don't think is a really good book for a first time Haskeller. I think there's much better books out there. But a second go at Haskell didn't get me anywhere. And then I looked at like Java and uh, I can't remember which other languages, but a couple other type languages trying to figure out this stuff. And then I took one third look at Haskell and I picked up the book Haskell, The Craft of Functional Programming by Simon Thompson. And that book is amazing. If someone's looking to learn Haskell and they have been frustrated with what's going on, like how the community is and like how they can't really learn very easily, I would say pick up that book because it's much more... It's much more focused on learning functional programming than it is on learning Haskell, I would say. And it provides a lot of good patterns to start picking up when you want to actually learn functional programming. So when I started going through that book, lots of things started to make a lot more sense. And I could start to understand Haskell programs and I could start to see the benefit of having like a type system and a compiler and something that was making sure that what you were doing and what your neighbor was doing would line up. So that was when it finally started to click for me that this Haskell thing is a pretty good language to, to go with. And ever since then, it's just been going down the, the Haskell hole, following the, the languages and learning different type things and learning new languages as well, like PureScript and Idris and whatnot. And yeah, that's pretty much the path in a nutshell. And for all your experience, and you mentioned over and over, I picked up this language, tried it, checked it out, saw what it was. Considering you came in not necessarily super excited about computer science, but just picked it because it sounded like there was the job. What was that spark about once you actually got in that made you become the language enthusiast that said, I want to go find out all about all these languages instead of just stick to the curriculum and make it through and then go find the job? What Do you remember what that spark was that said, well, there's something here, there's something I enjoy that makes me want to go check out these languages because you said you didn't just stick to the common ones. You went out and ventured into the more, and you kind of alluded to esoteric without being esoteric, but (laughs) when you talk about mainstream programming languages and you look at some of the top ranked stuff, Lisp is still pretty esoteric. Prolog is even more so, but you're picking up all this stuff. What was that click that said, I want to go and just dive deep and figure out a bunch of these languages and see what's out there? Yeah, I actually do remember. I don't remember like the, the specific date and time and like what I was thinking, but I do remember that at some point 
learning a different programming language reminded me of learning a natural language, which is something that I don't think I was completely aware that I really enjoyed doing throughout most of my life, but it was something that I sort of did without recognizing it. So like in, in high school, I learned, I say learned like I can actually speak it, but I learned French and was pretty good with like conversational French and have since forgotten most of it. But I also tried to learn other languages. I think the first foreign language that I ever tried to learn was, actually, I don't know. Anyway, over the years, I've tried to learn different languages and picked up some and sort of explored it a little bit with different levels of exploration. So I'm talking like French, Spanish, Japanese, Swahili, German, Kumeyaay, just all kinds of languages that are just different and something that I thought would be interesting at the time. And so I can't actually speak any of these languages, but I'm much better at reading than I am at speaking. So if I see certain words in the back of my head, I'll be able to pick up like, oh, this sentence is actually in Italian or something, right? And it's just something that's sort of been part of who I am that I didn't really realize was who I was until I started learning programming languages. And it sort of made the connection that each of these paradigms of programming languages are like different families of natural languages. And the different programming languages themselves inside of the, the paradigm are more like different dialects or different, let's say, Spanish and Portuguese or something. They're very similar, but they're different. So that'd be kind of like uh, C++ and Java, where they're like super similar as to their expressive power and how they're structured and their syntax and all that stuff. But they're still different enough that it's you can't just take a Java file and change the extension and have it compile for C++. So it really was just that I finally realized that all my life I've been a language enthusiast, and it took learning a different kind of language for me to realize that. And from what I've seen and heard about just the spoken slash written languages that we use to communicate in general, that does sound like an apt metaphor in the way that you're describing from what I've heard of the French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, or the Romantic languages. So while you don't necessarily understand one, you can kind of glance at it enough that says, I think I get the gist of what this is saying. Yeah, there's like a similar structure between certain families or languages in a family. Like you're saying, like romance languages have a certain way that they order the parts of speech. And like similarly for other languages that are in a similar family. And so you pick up all these languages, you go and you finally grasp Haskell. And then you've mentioned you've moved on to digging into some of the other ML-ish style, the strongly statically typed families. What was that evolution looking like? Because I know you've taken a lot of ideas just hearing from you and Brian talk on Magic Read Along about folding these ideas back and forth because you're doing Elm at No Red Ink. You're doing, playing a lot with PureScript. You've got your Haskell background. You're kind of crossing, crisscrossing all these different languages. <laughs> what have you found that you kind of settled on so far at this point in your career and your language learning of what makes the ideal language, if you could just kind of pick and choose the features, where are you kind of leaning towards and what you're liking and some of that stuff? Because if you explored these broad sets of languages, you've got these fundamental ideas across languages that are the same, but you've also got some completely different ways of thinking. And the fact that you've got things like prologue, which you don't actually state your problem. It's very, you don't solve your problem. You let that solve your problem because you state it. Mm-hmm. Versus some of the other type stuff where you can actually address potentially based off the complexity of your program, generate it from your types. 
and you've got all these different kinds of things. So where, where are you falling now and what's attracting you to languages and where you're wanting to start playing from? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I feel like there's so much that I could say about this, but people have a certain affinity for certain things. Like in the context of languages, there's like tonal languages. I'm no good at tonal languages because I learned English first. And so there's not really a lot of tonal words in English or something like read and read. Like I read the book or they read the book. Like it's the same word written the same way, but depending on how you pronounce it, it changes the meaning of the sentence. And we don't have a lot of that in English. So it was never really something that my mind or muscles sort of picked up and learned to differentiate very well. So if I try to learn a tonal language, I'm just awful at it. And if I try to speak a tonal language, then it's even worse. I can hear and like sort of make the distinction, but like when it starts to come out, it's awful because in my mind, tones don't mean anything, which is totally wrong. And also, I'm not sure that read is actually a good example of a tonal word, but the point remains that that's not something that I'm very good with. And I think that transfers over to programming languages. So there's certain concepts, like you're saying in a logic language, you sort of describe the problem that you want rather than actually implementing the problem and you let the system solve it for you. And that sort of idea works really well for certain people. And that's a concept that people can pick up easily if that's in their brain, like in their chemistry, whatever, they can do that. But certain people just, it's a lot harder to do. Not that it's impossible, but it's just a lot harder to do. So for me, the things that really click with me are types, which is, I think, really good because I feel like it's a language all to itself where you have a even terser syntax than you have in the programming yourself, the implementation, but it's also incredibly expressive. And since it's, it's like a full situation or formal, blah, since it's a formal language, you also have some sense of this is how it works. And I have like an algorithm that I can follow to understand whatever. So if I see some really complex type that has like 14 different type variables and like six different arguments and blah, 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 blah. There's a part of me that says like, I think most people, what the heck is this? Why is this thing so long? What I'm, I don't know. But there's another part of me that's like, oh, I understand this language and this clicks really well for me. I can run this algorithm in my head and I can figure out what this type is telling me and I can work with it. So that's sort of where I gravitate to at the current moment. And I imagine that there's other languages and other designs and, and patterns out there that might even be more in line with what I think and how my brain works. But typed languages are really the area where I'm really interested at the moment. And because you mentioned the type languages and that being your motivation originally, as far as trying to figure out how to get a bunch of people working together, you resulted to types. But you did mention you did Python early on. And I can't think of any really strong. I'm sure they are out there. I just can't think, don't know of them or can't think of them off the top of my head. Very strong in these ML sense of types, but that are non-functional. And so how did the functional aspect go compared to the type aspects when you were making that transition? You were talking about getting into Haskell and figuring that out. Was some of that the types? Was some of that the functionalness and not having your mutability or some of these other properties that you get along with other languages that you've had to adjust? Or what was the sense of learning that with the different 
aspects when you were picking up Haskell and where did you fall? Was that something that the functional nature was kind of aligned with or was that just the types were the stumbling blocks? What was that journey? Yeah. So I think when I was learning it, it was more intertwined. Like there wasn't a good distinction between I'm learning functional and I'm learning typed stuff. Since I was really directed on learning Haskell, it was sort of they're one and the same. And I'm not sure if that was good or bad, but for whatever case, it was just a thing that I was learning. Like there wasn't a a good distinction. So it didn't really occur to me that these two things were different, I guess. Looking back on it now, I can see certain parts of what I learned that were like, oh, this is totally like typed stuff that you're learning. And this is totally functional stuff that you're learning. But at the time, it was just sort of this is different and I'm learning it. And so it wasn't really like think about previous Python things that I've written and say, oh, this is way more functional or this is less functional or this is, you know, whatever. It was just that was Python and that was the way that we did it. And this is Haskell and this is the way that we do it. So it wasn't that hard for me to make the change from Python to Haskell. Also, probably because I was fairly new at it. So I didn't have a lot of prior uh, experience to break. But I just had to get in a different mindset that this is a different thing and this is what I'm going to learn. And then there we go. And the reason I start asking that is because I know you've also mentioned you've dug into Elixir a little bit and just being a programming language enthusiast as you've also had a little bit of the experience of the more dynamic functional languages to some extent. And so want to cover that as well. But there was also the if you found at this point, you can isolate where the types benefit you for things like working in teams and making sure that the collaboration is there versus the functional side without the types. If you had to take that approach of saying we're in Python or we're in JavaScript or whatever we're going to, because I've got to work on a team, but driving the more functional side of it and trying to keep that functionally pure, even if it may be dynamic and the benefits that it gets you versus the types in your head. Sure. That's a really good point to bring up. So like, the whole motivation, as we've been saying, is that I want to work on a team, right? So I think most languages in general are pretty good for whatever you want to use them for if you're doing stuff either by yourself or with like one or two people. You can make a giant Python program or a giant Ruby program or whatever and work on a group of two or three people and everything will be fine because you have an easy way to communicate between a small number of people. It's when you start to grow to having more than a couple people that I feel that types and tests also help immensely to communicate what the code is supposed to be doing and keep you in line with whatever features you're supposed to have. And some of that was how much did you find just the functional way of thinking and bringing things like first class functions and immutability and the like without the types, if you've had to do that and bring that back and how have you found that as a step, because you've got type systems mm-hmm. that are more like the Java and C Sharp, where they're not super strongly typed like the MLs, but there are some types around it versus, sorry, I don't want to use some types because that has a different meaning <laughs> when you're talking to the MLers. There are types, whether or not they go the full fledge of have, being able to get to some types and union types and all that kind of stuff, but you have types in a Java or a C Sharp or even a C++. But where is that balance of bringing in the functional ideas, treating mutability as a first-class citizen, 
creating functions that can pass in functions to be able to get you things like your maps and reduces and other higher order functions. Have you had much experience there or JavaScript? Because you don't have your types necessarily. You get a lot of this weird coercion. If you aren't careful, you can take advantage of that power. But where is that balance? Have you had that experience with that that balance between the type languages that are functional and then just the other functional languages that might not be typed? Yeah, so there's this big move in JavaScript land to do more things functional. And I've sort of been a part of that. I was working at a place where we were doing nothing but playing JavaScript. And at this point, I was like full-on Haskell, PureScript guy, right? So I would still write JavaScript in a purely functional way. Instead of doing like array.foreach and then mutating something somewhere, just do array.map and then return the actual thing and get like write purely functional code in a language that doesn't enforce purity, right? So that is fairly easy to do in a small scale, but when you get to a larger scale, it's really easy to just do like X plus plus or something, you know, something where you're like mutating something that is going to affect other parts of the code base. And it's harder to stay honest, I guess, is, is the thing I'm trying to say. So it's not bad necessarily. And it doesn't mean that you have to write everything as pure as you can. But if you try to do purely functional programming in a language that doesn't enforce the purity, it will bite you. It's just a matter of when it'll bite you and how hard it'll bite you. So sometimes it might not be that big of an issue and you can just do impure things and get away with it. And if you have a problem, it might not be that bad. You know, maybe you have a specific case where it would take like three extra files to do this thing in a pure fashion or, or, or like a bunch of extra modules to do this in a pure fashion in JavaScript. But you could do it in pure and it's in a part of the code base where you rarely touch that and your users rarely get there. And so if the program blows up, it's not that big of a deal, right? So in that case, like, yeah, you can use impure things just because from a business perspective, it doesn't make sense to spend the extra time and money and effort to make it pure. That's not, there's a trade-off, I guess. I'm kind of rambling here. <laughs> so it's harder, let me say, to use a purely functional approach in a language that doesn't enforce purity, but that doesn't mean it's impossible and it doesn't mean it's not worth the effort because even if the language doesn't enforce purity, you can still, I guess, sleep easier at night when you know that some random thing isn't going to blow up the program that you just wrote or somebody's not going to mutate your object that you just spent 10 hours trying to figure out. So there's trade-offs. And that was kind of driving towards it because that's what I found was it gets you a step there and I haven't done a lot with the pure scripts and MLs, although those, they are on my list at some point. But even moving towards the making it more pure when you can, whether it's playing through the experience of things like Clojure or Erlang or some of these others where you start to recognize the benefits and you start to eliminate some of the classes of mistakes. You're not eliminating all of them, but you are still replying on discipline. And I didn't know how much that found that was driving you versus if you were given a type system without necessarily the functional side. And maybe that's more of an OCaml where you can still do impure and OO style stuff from my understanding but still have a good type system where that falls on your list of languages and trade-offs that you make from playing with a bunch of other languages. Yeah, so I guess it all depends on what you value when you're working. 
for me, I'm very lazy and I don't like to think a lot. So if, if I can get a type checker to actually say where I'm doing wrong and doing right, then that's great for me because that's just something that I value. I value my time not working more than I value my time working. And that sounds, uh, that, maybe that's not the right way to say it because <laughs> like, I love my job. Don't get me wrong, but it depends on what you value. So I value not spending a lot of time thinking about the problem and just completing the problem. And so that's something that a type checker can allow me to do easily or more easily because it can tell me when I've made like a silly mistake here or there. And it can also sort of guide me in the direction of here's how you solve the problem. And like, there's only three or four ways to do this. So you don't have to think too hard or there might just be one way to do it. And it'll tell you when you strayed from the path and point you exactly in that direction. So to me, that's very important. And that's something that I find very interesting, but also very useful in day-to-day work. When you're working with other people, I also find that super helpful because you can say, change some part of what you're working on. And you can know that you're not going to affect the person next door to you that's also working in a similar area. Or you can realize that you have a bug somewhere and change a part of the program and force the person next to you to make the change so that the bug is gone. And I feel like having types and a compiler behind your back helps that immensely. But like we've been saying, it's a trade-off, right? So if you have a group of people that you're working with where you're really good at communicating through English and through maybe like written documentation that this is the way that things work and you have like a system around it, then there's probably not much, you probably would get less benefit from moving to a statically typed, strongly typed language than you would from just improving your process more. But I think in my experience, it's been that that's very rarely the case. And it's much more likely that there are implicit ideas and implicit knowledge that this is the way it works. And it's very easy to stray from that knowledge without also breaking other things. And there's nothing really checking you other than like maybe a tester or QA or in the worst case, your users, when they say, well, we've lost this feature, what happened here? And that makes sense. And again, it was trying to see with everything being trade-offs, how you find those trade-offs and what you would kind of give up first. And so it sounds like types are your last resort that you would want to give up in a language. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's so much more that helps less than I think types help. And there's a lot that you can do with types, even with, I know people like to rag on Java for having a bad type system, but it's actually not that bad. There's a lot that you can do in a Java type system that helps you in an easier fashion than you could do with writing a whole bunch of tests. But that's, again, that's not something that everybody needs to make the trade-off on. But I would personally make the trade-off to say, give me types before giving me something else. And this leads into, you're at no writing. You're working on Elm because that's one of their foundations. And I had Tessa and Richard on as a past episode talking about their use of moving stuff towards Elm from even yeah. a JavaScript and React. But I know they also also the Ruby backend. There's looking at a little bit of Elixir. And from what I've heard, there is kind of a front end backend, but there's a little bit more fluidity of, well, if we need people, people will hop over. And again, on Magic Read Along, or as you said, maybe it's Magic Read Along since it's past tense. <laughs> but uh, it was a previous episode. I don't know if that's how it works, but 
<laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned that you were digging into Elixirsome. And so you've got this strong front end. You've got the little bit of Java interop, but then you've also kind of hit some of the back end stuff a little bit just to at least play with it. I want to dig in a little bit about some of those trade-offs because even then with between Elm, you've got Elm's mindset versus PureScript's mindset versus some of the stuff that you're folding in from Haskell from into each of those. And then you're also checking Idris. What are some of the balances you found between these languages you're kind of in and out on in a relatively daily basis? And what are some of those ideas that you like from each of those languages and you try and fold in? Because I believe you even said you were trying to pull in some of the kind of monad stuff back into Elixir just to play with it and see what it might take to be able to have some of those operations. So can you just dig in a little bit and just kind of, I guess, give an overview of what you found across all those languages and where some of the stuff is nice that you wish was there. And we've already kind of covered some of the limiting factors of things like Elixir where you want more types. And while there is some gradual typing work being done coming from Erlang, it's not the strong types you have. So I just kind of want to let you loose and just give a rundown of some of the different languages and differences you find in those philosophies and the stuff you're kind of hopping in and out of in a relatively regular basis nowadays. Sure. So like you mentioned, our backend is primarily Ruby. It's like a big Rails application. And the thing that I've realized is that you can't really, well, okay. So there's two things that I realized. First, I realized that I, I dislike Rails with a passion. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, never mind. Yeah. So I don't like Rails. And I think the reason that I don't like it is because it has a lot of features that seem to have been added in a less principled way than is ideal. And that doesn't mean that it's a bad piece of software or anything. I don't believe that at all. I think it's a, a great piece of software, but it's not the software that I would like to use on a day-to-day basis. It's great if you're like a small company, if you're a couple developers and you're trying to get something off the ground. I mean, it's like awesome because you can throw together. I mean, there's the DHH thing where you throw together a blog in like five minutes or whatever, right? But you have that sort of power to just throw up a small site, let it grow a little bit and like keep adding features for a very small amount of work. So like, it's great for that, right? But I think at some point you sort of get to outgrowing Rails and what it's for because it seems like it was made for a specific purpose and it solves that purpose so well. But when you start to move beyond that purpose, it starts to fight with you a little bit. It seems familiar of it's good software, as you said, but it allows you to too easily mix concerns in the same way that you were talking about types, where it's too easy to make sure everything is just thrown into your view or whatever level, and you're not separating out your concerns that the types or this would force you to, and you are only bounded by your discipline of making sure you get things in the right place, as you said, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of part of Ruby as a language, where... There's not a strict enforcement of the right way to do it or like um, things that are not allowable. So when I'm working on something that's Ruby, I try to. So I guess the bigger answer to your question is that whatever language I'm in, whatever paradigm or whatever that I'm in, I try to stick to the idioms of that so that it's not like a half baked solution. So even though I'll write Ruby code and even though I'm I love functional programming. I love logic programming. I love all these other things. I'll still try to write in 
a object-oriented fashion, I guess, and sort of embrace the concepts that are idiomatic to Ruby rather than I will try to push doing things in a purely functional way simply because it clashes with the idea of the language. And that's something that is, in my opinion, a little harder to deal with on a day-to-day basis than just dealing with mutation or whatever on the whole. But that doesn't mean that if you're starting like a brand new Ruby project, you should just, you know, oh, all the way, blah, blah, blah. If you start with saying, I want to do this in a functional fashion and you're writing Ruby, then that's great. You know, you've sort of laid the groundwork for a certain style of code that's going to be written throughout the code base. But if you're coming to a Ruby code base that's made in a more OO fashion, then trying to change that over creates a lot of friction, I guess, within the code base itself. So for the most part, I try to stick to whatever's already there just to be like a good Samaritan, I guess, in the code base, if that's a proper metaphor. <laughs> but like you're asking how, how it is when you switch back between these different languages, it's kind of hard to sort of flip the switch in your head that now we're doing things in a functional fashion and this is how it's going to go, or now we're doing things in a let it fail fashion and this is how it's going to go. But I think with practice, it gets a lot easier to sort of keep the idioms within the language and follow them when you see them and not be disgusted when you see something different. Like if you've written JavaScript your whole career or or Ruby or Python or whatever, and you see a piece of Elm or Haskell or whatever, and you think, why are you doing this? Why is this thing so different? Why la la la? You might initially be put off by it, but that's idiomatic in the language. And trying to force something that's not idiomatic in the language to be in the language is a very friction-based action. (laughs) So it kind of goes back to the theme I've been subtly pushing, is that working in a team, you have to work in the team and you have to be part of the team. So one person going off and trying to do a certain different fashion of programming when everything is this opposite way is not healthy for the whole team in general. You have to be able to communicate what's going on, why you're doing it this way. So trying to push purity into Elixir, say, is not necessarily the best thing, I don't think, because it's not a purely functional language. You can do a lot of things that are impure in Elixir, and like Elixir and Erlang, I guess, let me say. It works very well for those languages because the impurity isn't a big problem in those languages. In fact, it's the main reason why those languages are popular. You know, when you send a a message to an actor, that's a core part of the language, but that's also a very impure action. But that doesn't mean that you should not send messages to actors ever. If you did, then you'd be, I mean, I don't know what kind of Elixir or Erlang you'd be writing, but it wouldn't be OTP, right? And that's that's like the main benefit of having those languages. So there's certain things that you can do. Let me say this. You don't need to also throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? You don't have to say, I'm an elixir, so I'm not going to do anything pure ever. I'm just going to try to mutate as much stuff as I can. But designing or interfacing with other elixir programs and interfacing with other code that's already been written, it doesn't mean that you need to say, okay, now we're going to do everything pure. And this is just how it's going to be. And with part of that is there's that team aspect, but I know you also go off and play on your own for the languages and being the language enthusiast, you've also just tried to see how these other ideas fold in. And some of that is you mentioned the let it crash that you get from the Elixir and you've got something similar 
where you're explicitly thinking about failure with the either or the maybe monads, where in this case, this is where something can go wrong. I'm expecting everything to go right in most of these cases, but here's explicitly that contention point for failures that I've accounted for. How have you found some of those ideas and what stuff would you like brought back in? Because you've also played with, I think it was lenses you were talking about on one episode and trying to fold lenses and some of that stuff in. I think that's what it was. I'm not sure what mm-hmm. lenses are offhand, but pulling that into Elm and doing some of the oh, stuff from ProScript into Elm. While you might not be using it in production, you are kind of pushing the boundaries of some of these languages on your own to see what that is. So what are some of those boundaries that you're enjoying pushing and pulling on and tugging and seeing where those edges are? I mean, you mentioned lenses. You want to talk lenses? We can talk lenses, all right? I mean, but there's probably not, there's not enough time in the rest of this episode <laughs> to talk lenses. but. So you asked a couple of questions there that were really interesting. And I think I forgot the first one or two, but you mentioned something about using either or whatever. So that's a really good example of doing something idiomatically, where in Haskell, since it's a pure language, the idea is to, like you're saying, move the effects from being something that you can't actually track in the types to being something that you can track in the types. And so rather than just doing like a throw in the middle of a function when you're done or, or when you want to ex- escape from it or whatever, you instead return a value that encapsulates your effect that you want there. And so at first, it sounds a little weird to say that you want to encode a exception into your types. But when you think about it, it sort of makes sense because a lot of a lot of like Haskell is just encoding the effects into your types. and I use effects loosely here to mean both side effects and computational effects. So like you're saying an optional value, like maybe this thing won't return a value. That is an effect that you can encode in the type system fairly easily. And we have a standard data type for that called maybe. And if you want to say this is an optional value that may fail, but when it fails, I want to get some information about why it failed. Well, that's another computational effect or I guess it's a, a side effect turned into a computational effect that has a type that we have commonly decided on, I guess, called either. And, you know, you're saying that either you have a value or you have this other thing, right? But that doesn't, I feel like I'm not doing justice to either and maybe here by just saying that they encode effects and just saying that they encode exceptions or whatever, because that's not the whole story, but that's a very common case for them. And it's a it's a nice case to sort of learn the intuition for it, but it's also not where you should stop learning, I guess, because there's so much more that comes from either in particular that is not expressed the first time you sort of learn Haskell. And it's a very interesting data type just by itself. And then you asked something else towards the end that I thought was really interesting, but I forgot what that was as well. Well, and some of that was... And I think that other one I asked towards the end was the pushing the boundaries between these languages as you go off on your own. That's what I brought up lenses for was I think you were applying, trying to get lenses into Elm and see how that folded in and some of those lessons you've taken across boundaries. And maybe if we can, without taking up a whole nother episode, and maybe we'll have to get you <laughs> on to give a whole episode to explain lenses for those of us who are unfamiliar, but. Do you want to maybe we start with a what are lenses at a high level and then just some of those stuff about 
how you're pulling in and pushing the boundaries of some of these other languages across the ideas you've pulled in. Whether sure. it's the let it crash model from Erlang or that maybe either concept in the Haskell or whatever it is where you're like, there's some good ideas here that can be twisted a little bit, but still hit the fundamental principle of what it's trying to establish and apply those ideas across languages on your own as you play with them. Sure. I remembered what that other thing that I wanted to talk about was. It was proofs, just very briefly. So um, remind me to circle back to that. But lenses, high level. So the the very high level is that you have a data structure and you want to be able to get a part of this data structure and you want to be able to set the same part of a data structure. So that's basically what a lens is. It's an encapsulation of that idea where you have one function that pulls out a piece of a whole data structure and you have another function that takes a new value and sets it in that data structure. Of course, when you're in a language with immutability as its core, you don't actually mutate anything. You just return a, va- a brand new value. But the idea remains the same. So that's like the really high level of lenses. And depending on how you formulate a lens, there are some really interesting things that come out of that. One interesting thing that comes out of it is based on your formulation, you can make it so that rather than taking just a piece of the structure, you take the whole structure and interpret it in a slightly different way. So like, let's say you had a data type for units of measurement and your base data type was millimeters. Well, you could have a lens that would view some millimeter value as centimeters. And that would mean that you could get the value in centimeters and you could also set the value in centimeters. So that leads you to a whole rabbit hole of new things to explore. And that's a very interesting take on it. But then there's another really interesting aspect to lenses where if you formulate it properly, you can sort of flip things just slightly and encode the idea of a lens, I guess, for a sum type like you've mentioned before. So like a lens is very producty or, or recordy or whatever, where you have for sure a structure with certain values and you for sure can get a value and you for sure can set a value. So a prism operates on some types where you might have a value or you might not have a value and you can maybe get that value and maybe set that value or you just can't. So depending on how you formulate your lens, you can switch it around just slightly so that now you have this formulation of what's called prisms in the terminology. So it's very interesting and there's a lot of information on it that's just everywhere. And it seems like every couple of months somebody comes up with a new formulation that's just amazing. And it's a really interesting space to work in. To continue with the proof part though. So that's something that I've been trying to bring to Elm kind of slowly, but I would really like to push that a lot more and It might sound a little scary to say, let's do proofs in Elm, but they're very, when I say proofs, I mean a certain thing. I mean a runtime proof that allows you to encode more information in your types so that it's either impossible or very close to impossible to get the code wrong. And that's something that is a little bit hard to start to learn, but I'd like to make it a lot easier for most people to learn because there's it's it's very applicable to a lot of the things that we do and it's a very useful thing to want to have in a language and it's a very useful thing for people to know i believe that there's ways to prove your program correct 
at compile time that is not impossible to do and it's not that expensive to do, I guess, in terms of time or whatever. And so you're folding these ideas and proofs being one, but since you've had a good pure script background to some extent and a are doing Elm, I've had a very cursory look and I tried to do a Simon game in Elm one time and could not figure out the side effects for making the lights flash if I wanted to have the computer, the AI, to use that term in quotes, generate a sequence of values and have that play it back to the user. But did a little bit, kind of see how, saw some of the types, and then have done some cursory pure script just to try and get a feel of what that is. Where is the difference in pure script versus Elm in your world from having more experience in where is that balance of what Elm brings to the table versus what pure script brings to the table for you? And can you give a brief rundown of the difference of those? Because if you're trying to bring provability back into Elm, what do you find is the difference between the two? Because I know Evans also said, we want Elm to be kind of that gateway drug into functional programming. And he's taken out some of the stuff recently with signals or moved it to signals. Can't remember which way it went to make it more approachable. <laughs> sure. That's a great question. Because I feel like a lot of people sort of get to that point where they're like, okay, there's six or seven different statically typed functional languages that I could try to use to compile a JavaScript. Like, which one do I use? And I think that question is something that you have to sort of answer by yourself. I don't think it's something that there's like a formula that you can say, okay, I have this, this, and this, so I should use this language. But it's really something that is, I guess, case by case. So like you're saying, Evan has worked really hard to make Elm a very easy to understand and quick to get up and running and very useful language. And I think he's done an incredible job with that. And PureScript is sort of like a incredibly expressive language. It's a little bit harder to get start with, but it has a lot more power, I guess, to do certain things than you have in Elm. That's not to say that Elm will hold you back. I don't think that's the case at all, but it's not to say that Elm is a bad choice and PureScript is a good choice. Like I said, it's it's a choice that you have to make on a case-by-case basis. So certain things that you can do in PureScript are you have access to higher order types and higher kinded types. And these let you express more invariance in your types so that you have to, or that you get to write less tests, I guess, to ensure that your code is correct. And it also lets you extract away some of the implementation of certain things and remove duplication from certain parts of your code base. But it's not without its own faults because higher kind of types and higher order types are more complex just by their nature. So you have to learn a little bit more in order to use those effectively. Yeah, so I don't feel like if you just need to write a web app, you just want to put a program up on the screen, whatever, then either language is a great choice. If you have zero experience with types, with compilers, and with functional programming, then I would say Elm is probably the, the easier choice for you. If you have the mindset that's like, I'm willing to learn anything, and I want to just learn something that's really good, and that allows me to express a lot of stuff, then PureScript is the best choice for you. The difference in my mind is sort of how easy it is to express a certain idea in either language. And for me personally, having come from Haskell to start with, and then using PureScript in production, and finally using Elm in production, 
I feel like PureScript is more in line with how I think and how problems make sense in my head more so than Elm, simply because there are certain things about it that are a little easier for me to understand. Like, so with higher kind of types and higher order types and stuff like that, those are just something that I understand to a level that makes sense to me. And I've heard rumors of things with Elm on the back end and as far as the roadmap goes, but just my very basic cursory glances, Elm has always seemed more like if you want the framework included in the architecture, because you hear a lot about the Elm architecture of putting together web pages and you want kind of a standard way to do things versus PureScript is more free for all you get to design because there's any number of libraries which determine your structure, whether it's Halogen or one of the others. It sounded like there's some of that as the difference, but I wasn't sure about just some of the deeper fundamental language stuff. Sure. So I think another big difference between the two is how easy it is to interface with JavaScript. So in Elm, it's not that easy to pull in a arbitrary JavaScript library and just make it work. There's a little bit more work to make that happen, but it's not impossible. In PureScript, it's sort of baked into the language that it's pretty easy to pull in an arbitrary JavaScript library and just use it. So there's that aspect that makes it a little easier. If you have a lot of code that you need to interface with that's still in JavaScript, then again, I think this is one point where you would probably choose PureScript over Elm. And that doesn't mean that you have to then start using all the advanced features of PureScript. You can like read the Elm guide and write it in PureScript and just use that as your tool for learning because the Elm guides are amazing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can only learn the Elm guide if you're writing Elm. So there are still resources and tools available for you in PureScript. So we're pushing bounds on time, but you've played with a lot. I know there's a lot that excites you just hearing you and Brian again back on Magic Read Along, where you've got these topics of interest that come up and get you excited. What haven't we covered that is on your radar that's getting you excited that you think we should at least make mention to the audience and make them aware that says, hey, here's something that's really cool that you've been into recently that we haven't covered yet? The thing that I really wanted to cover was proofs and just being able to say, it's not this scary thing. It's really useful. It's something that we should be doing. That's really what I wanted to say. And that's really what I think people should sort of take away from this is that they're, I'm being intentionally vague here because I don't think we have enough time to really go into it, but it's a concept that's sort of simple enough to explain, but it's not really simple enough to start using, but it's a very helpful concept for working on a team and being effective and productive and doing things in a way that just sort of works. So I'm going to break your intentionally being vagueness and ask you to dig a little deeper because when I hear proofs, there is things like testing and generative testing where I'm just trying to prove some sort of confidence level. You go from test driving or test after to generative testing where instead of me coming up with a number of cases that prove to myself that I think I'm confident, the computer tries to prove a lot more cases just by implying and understanding types, generating test cases. And then you've got other proofs that I believe is more stricter static checking in the type system or in the Idris type system versus actually writing proofs on things that 
are actually formal proof languages. So when you're interested in proofs, at what level of proofs does that excite you? Or is it just across the board? Yeah, it really is across the board. (laughs) So you bring up a very interesting point. There are certain things that you can do that negate the use of a, a formal proving situation. So like if you have a relatively simple function, like say it's bool to bool, there's only four implementations of this function. And I'm pretty sure that you can figure out which implementation you've written in the tests through maybe a couple different cases. So in that situation, there's no reason in my mind to bring in a proof library and start using it. But if you have a slightly more complex type where it's like list the string to tuple of something and something else, right? Then it's like, well, there's a lot of stuff you can do with lists. There's a lot of stuff you can do with strings. And depending on what the result value is, there's there might be a lot of stuff you can do with that. So this is a case where writing the test might not provide you with enough confidence that you've implemented the right thing. Whereas slapping maybe a couple of different proofs into what you're writing there might make it a little easier. And so it should also be noted that there are times when you can write types that ensure that you have exactly one implementation of the function that you're trying to write. And so in this case, again, proofs don't really help you, but more importantly, tests don't help you at all because whatever you would test has already been encoded by the type system and it's checked every single time that you compile the file. So there's no reason to even write a test for this function, which I think to some people might sound like blasphemy, right? But it's a true statement. You know, if your function is A to A, there's exactly one implementation of that, which is identity. If your function is A to B to A, again, one implementation of that. So depending on what types you have in your program, there might only be one, maybe two, three implementations of that. In the case where there's more than one implementation, it might actually make sense to do a couple tests to prove that you've implemented the program right for what you were expecting. And that's like the best way to do it, right? Is to know what you possibly could be implementing here and then prove that. So it gets a lot trickier when you end up using a lot of concrete types where you have like string to bool to list and you're trying to figure out what you've implemented there. So the idea is sort of like if you have a concept or an invariant that you want to enforce in your program, you can encode that in certain ways in the program so that there's only one way to implement the function and that's just how it is. This is really hard to explain through words. (laughs) So I wrote a package in Elm called Elm Proofs and we can provide a link in the show notes, but it walks through a couple different examples. There's one that uses an equivalence proof and there's one that uses an equality proof. And like you're saying, there's different levels of confidence that you get from these things. So using an equivalence proof, you only get a certain level of confidence and like there's still a way to sort of skirt the proof system and do something malicious if you really try to. But if you use like an equality proof, you get even more confidence that you've implemented the right thing. And I try to walk through both of those and explain it in a, in a fashion that's a little easier to understand than just like verbalizing it because it's really hard to say, oh, well, you just take an A to A to B to, you know, right. But I think it's a little easier to understand there. So I would, I would recommend checking that out. But the idea is sort of to provide different levels of confidence that you can use in your types while you're writing your program. And when you go to implement it, it's 
a lot easier to ensure that you've actually implemented the right thing. And so I've mentioned briefly that they're runtime proofs, which means that you have to dispatch or use the proof at runtime in order for the program to compile, which seems a little weird. Maybe I'm not expressing that properly. But it comes down to calling like a function on your proof with the value that you want to prove, and then it just works. And this is like the function that you end up calling is identity, basically. So you don't really like, it doesn't seem like you're doing a whole lot, you know, when you think about what's actually happening here, but you're sort of appeasing the type system to say, hey, this is what I expect. Check to make sure that I'm doing the right thing and then basically do nothing because identity as a function, it could be inlined a way to not do anything if you had a smart enough compiler. So the idea is to get rid of the proof information at runtime rather than compile time, I guess. And I'll make sure to include that link to the show notes. And I do think that was a good rundown of the various levels of proofs and when you actually take advantage of them. Because you gave a few more examples that I hadn't thought of beyond just knowing that there's different kind of categories of confidence that certain aspects give you. Yeah. And there's a lot that the field of formal verification, I guess, is huge. There's like so many concepts and there's so many ideas. And, you know, a lot of them you can't actually encode into a type system like Elm because it's just not expressive enough. But that doesn't mean that you can't encode some of the stuff and use some of the stuff. I mean, there's a lot that you actually can encode. So I'm still trying to grow that grow that library a bit. And I'm interested to see what comes of that and how, how much more we can do. So we're pushing time for the schedule. So with that, that sounds like it was another good topic. And I'm sure we'll have to get you on more to talk <laughs> more about proofs, lenses, all these co-effects and everything else that you kind of threw out and kind of get a rundown of terminology and resources for getting people up to speed on some of this advanced category theory stuff. Sure. And how it's actually useful instead of just understanding what it is. But in the meantime, just wrapping up, we mentioned Magic Read Along. I know you're involved with that. You're at Node Read Inc. You've talked about that a little bit. But is there anything else that you want to plug? Do you have any other upcoming appearances? I know you don't do many conferences as presenter, but is there anything you're going to be at? Other projects you're involved with? You mentioned the proofs. What other stuff that you want to make sure the audience knows about or just other recommendations in general? Yeah, so I'm kind of in the middle of starting a bunch of stuff. And I don't want to really announce it yet because there's a good chance when I announce it, I won't actually do it. <laughs> and then I'll just feel really bad. But let me just say there's some ideas I'm working on, some learning stuff, some some other stuff. And I'm really excited to get them going. Yeah. When you already known out some of those and you've actually got them started and are in progress or have finished them, feel free to hit me up and I'll help you let everybody know that that stuff is out there and I can get those proactively active to the show notes or maybe it's time for another episode one when you've got some of that stuff lining back up as well. So Sure. Sounds good. Thank you. So do you have any call to action for the listeners or anything you want to ask of them coming out of this episode? I would say... Whatever you're doing, just take a second to step out of your comfort zone and do something different. If you have been really entrenched in functional programming for the past two or three years, then take a step back and look at maybe logic programming or look at object-oriented programming again. If you have been doing nothing but C for 10 years, then, you know, go look at Python. Why not, right? Look at something different. Just, just take a step out of your comfort zone and try something that 
you haven't done before. And that sounds like a great call to action and probably broader than just the technology side too, I would assume. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, like if you've always wanted to build a bicycle, then go build a bicycle. Why not? Right. (laughs) So where can people find you and follow along with what's going on in your world? Where are the best places for people to watch and keep track of what's going on when those announcements come or otherwise? So I'm pretty active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is ST58. Don't ask what that is. And yeah, I've got a, yeah, that's the best place. (laughs) That's the best place to find me. Also, my GitHub is Jones HF, and I'm not that active anymore on GitHub, but I still do things from time to time. I've also got somewhat of a blog that I rarely, rarely update, joneshf.github.io. And I think those are the big three, mainly Twitter, though. And of course, Magic Read Along, which I'll get added to the show notes as ah, well, since yes. we mentioned it a number of times. <laughs> yeah, definitely check that out. I mean, if you haven't listened to it yet, I'd say give it a listen. Maybe don't listen to all the episodes, but most of the, the later episodes are pretty good. Episode 11 and episode 13 are really good episodes. That's Attack of the Bryans and It's a Space Zipper. Those are very, I, I like them a lot anyway. So I'd say start with those and then maybe look at the other ones. And I'll put those in the show notes as well. Cool. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thanks, Hardy, for taking your time to join me today. It was, it was been interesting listening to you on Magic Read Along, and I've appreciated digging in more and being able to have this conversation and trying to parse out some of those things that you've alluded to on those episodes I've heard about. And I'm definitely going to have to get you back on to dig into more of these topics and try and get a better understanding of some of this stuff because they sound really interesting, but I'm not at the point yet where I've even known where to dig in on some of these stuff and get even the 30,000 foot view, much less the 10, five or 500 foot view of some of these topics. And I think you've given a good rundown of some of them so far. So we'll definitely have to get you back on. Let me know if it's sooner than later and we'll get you back on and have another episode where we can digging deeper to lenses or proofs or some of these other stuff that's got you really interested at this point. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.